All right. Hello, everyone. Oh, that's really bright. Hey, there we go. I'm Pastor Gillespie. I'm from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church and School, Sherman Center. We're in Random Lake, Wisconsin. Good to have you here this evening for our, well, we cannot get in now. Oh, I don't know what that's all about. Um, tonight for our Bible study, 1 Corinthians, and we're in chapter 15. So Eileen, uh, I'm not sure what she means. We cannot get it in now. Hmm. So let me get the class up on the screen here. Sorry about the echo. I'm using a different mic and different stand, but uh, so it is in this room. It needs some treatment for this kind of thing, but uh, hopefully echo is not too bad. All right, so class plus logos. There we are. All right. So we're again, we're in chapter 15. And what's chapter chapter 15 is is really the conclusion. I mean, 16, there's a, a few addendums at the end, the final notes, but uh, really it's the end of the theological discourse in the book. Um, and it's a long extended argument on the resurrection of Jesus. And so it begs the question, why? <laughs> right? I mean, Paul doesn't just preach, he's not just going to confess Christ uh, here in this book, because he, he, he's for, for no reason, I should say that. He, he's doing it because he's very particularly uh, been dealing with uh, issues within that church in Corinth. That's the purpose of him writing this letter. Now you are back. Okay, good. Um, he's, that's the purpose of writing this letter, is to address um, theological issues within the church there in Corinth. Right, so he's not—he's not, he's not going to—he's ju not just preaching to them, if you like, um, but he is trying to bring correction um, to errors that have crept into the church. Now, um, an error in regards to the resurrection of Jesus—that's an interesting question. Now, um, you might remember that back in chapter one, uh, this was a topic as well. So, all the way at the beginning, this is a bookend. Uh, this theme was actually introduced there, so we'll go there. Uh, let's see if I can get to it here. Ah, yes, here it is. Uh, not think Paul. Here it is. But for uh, for the message of the cross, verse eighteen of chapter one, is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, "I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and." Bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And here we go. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And then I'm going to scroll a little bit. Um, you notice that he says it again at the beginning of chapter 2. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or uh, of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you, except, there it is again, Christ Jesus Christ and him crucified for I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling 
but my speech, etc. So then he talked about kind of his weakness. But again, twice, both in chapter one and now in chapter two, the confession is about Christ and him crucified. It's the, it's the cross of Christ that stands at the center of this letter, actually, but it, um, by way of bookmarks on either end. All right, so let's go back to chapter 15. Yeah, good to see you there, Tim. I see you in the chat. Grace, Dawn, Eileen, glad you all could make it. All right, and again, if you have any questions as we go through this, I think this chapter is probably a little bit more straightforward, although it is a pretty, um, it's lengthy. So we'll see how it goes. All right, so with that set up from chapter one and a little bit of chapter two, here we go. Moreover, moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you. Remember chapter two? which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. This all sounds very familiar to chapter 2, right? And chapter 1. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then, last of all, he was seen by me also, as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. All right. I actually didn't prepare too much material for us. So again, if you have any questions, we'll do that. We'll just try to step through it a little bit here, all right, as to what's going on. So remember back in chapter 1, 18 and 19, he talked about um, the word of the cross being the center um, of his preaching. And now in this chapter, he's saying that it's actually the center of our hope. It's the center of our hope. And apart from that, we actually have no hope. We would believe in vain. It seems as if, to kind of answer the question, what's going on in this church in Corinth? It seems as if the, um, there, there are those there who do believe in some kind of um, life after death, but it's not a bodily resurrection. All right? So maybe that's one problem. It's also potentially, there's also potentially those who teach that only um, the dead who are in Christ will be raised and then everyone else um, will just cease to exist. We talked about that a little bit in our uh, morning Bible class. And the, and the reason for that um, is because of the way that uh, the Greeks thought of the life after death. Um, there is actually a correlating um, issue, and this would be in 2 Timothy. Paul has a similar kind of issue. 2 Timothy 2, verse 17. So we'll go there. All right. So well, actually, let's go back to 16. But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal, the Lord knows who's, who are his, 
and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. All right, so notice um, this teaching that Paul acknowledges here in 2 Timothy um, is that is that by, by, well, they probably attached it to baptism, that at your baptism, that is your resurrection from the dead. That's the resurrection that the Lord was referring to. And in one sense, it's true, right? We say that we have died with Christ and the, thus we were raised with him. We say, think of um, Titus, right? We were buried therefore through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life, right? So they say that the baptized believer is already living in the resurrection. And that's, that's true. Um, but they also are not yet in the resurrection, right? So Paul is careful um, to teach also that uh, while we remain in this body of death, think Romans, right? While we remain in this body of death, um, it needs to be um, it needs to be disciplined by God's law. Actually, the new man in Christ is who disciplines the old Adam, uh, restrains him under, holds him under the water again, if you like, drowns him in baptism water again. All right, so. Uh, it's an interesting teaching because then they would say that when you die, you just die. Um, but I think probably the more common uh, Greek thought is that uh, it's this it's this almost Gnostic idea. Uh, Gnostic being you know higher wisdom. You've heard that term before, and uh, it's it's that the body is a cage. And every time I say that, I always think uh, of an artist. Actually, a, a recent pop song, relatively recent. I don't know. It's not that recent. Um, by by a band named Arcade Fire, and that's the chorus. My body is a cage, or that's the beginning of the verse. My body is a cage. And it's this old. Um, it's really an old Greek philosophical idea. My body. I'm going to find out the name of the song. My body is a cage. That's the name of it. It's from their album Neon Bible. Ironically, uh, that's kind of a catchy song, but. Uh, that's a dangerous doctrine. So the idea is that the body is actually like holding us down. It's keeping us back. And what we need is to transcend the body and, and, and go to a higher spiritual being, right? Uh, and maybe that in the resurrection, you have like some kind of super body, a body that's greater than the body we have now, unlike what Jesus himself says. And what we, we also then confess at every uh, Christian committal that, that the Lord raised this body right? When we place the body in the ground, you know, we declare again the words of um, that Christ has made them his own in baptism, and then we confess that, that he, he will raise this body, the body we lay to rest. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I think it's best, if possible, if at all possible, that uh, you are buried whole <laughs> and not uh, dismembered um, through fire and other means, all right? So not a big fan of cremation. I don't know that it's the best Christian confession. I don't know that it's particularly wrong either in this day. It's not connected with all the, uh, you know, burning at the stakes and uh, the way the Romans persecuted Christians. But there is a beauty um, to actually laying someone to rest, you know, and, and laying them down, so to speak, um, in the grave. Okay. Now, uh, what were we talking about? Oh, yes, what might be have been the problem? Um, Paul goes through uh, basically four steps here in this chapter. The first is he rehearses for them or he repeats for them the gospel of crucified and risen Jesus, along with here, what's I think really helpful is talks about eyewitness testimony. And so we should talk about what that what that's all about. And then he, um, in verses 12 through 34, so we didn't get this far, um, he's going to do some rebuttal of all the skeptics' arguments, those who are denying the resurrection. resurrection. 
Um, towards the end, he's going to explain what kind of body we will have in the resurrection, right? Again, I think he's trying to um, countermand some um, false understanding there in the church in Corinth, and arguably in our own context too. And then uh, he's going to end uh, with a praise and, and admonition to faithfulness, faithfulness, of course. All right, so um, let's start at the beginning. I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which we talked about, which you've received, which I... St- in which you stand, by which you are also saved, if you hold fast. There's that word, um, you know, holding fast. Uh, uh, yeah, no, it's not Torah. Okay. The word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, here's the interesting thing. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. Now, wait a minute. When did he receive the message of Christ and him crucified? Remember, this is St. Paul. And as he says later, um, that he is one that is untimely born. So when did he receive it? Well, remember, um, Paul received it as an enemy of the church, right? So you can go look at, uh, you know, um, Acts chapter 9, right? And, well, maybe we should just do that quickly. Paul's own testimony here, or Paul's own conversion. All right, so we have Paul's conversion here on the road to Damascus. Um, and the light's shining from heaven. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus says, who are you? I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Lord, what do you want me to do? Go to the city, etc. All right. Um, but, yeah, it's the road to Damascus. But I think it was back at the stoning of Stephen. Do we hear that Paul is there, or does he later tell us that he was at the stoning? This is in Acts 7. Here's the preaching of Stephen. I'm letting it scroll by very quickly. Sorry, so for that on your end. Uh, fire and bush. Da, 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 da. Israel rebels against God. What a long sermon. So nice. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. They gnashed their teeth. But being full of the Holy Spirit, um, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Yeah, okay, so, oh, there it is. And then Saul consented to his death. So it's right at the beginning of chapter 8. I had to scroll all the way through chapter 7. I knew it was in there, right? So Saul was there and he consented um, to his stoning. Oh, and then right there in verse 58, that's what I was looking for. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul, right? So how does he know? He heard the testimony <laughs> of St. Stephen, the preaching of Stephen, right? Um, and actually, Stephen does a wonderful job of, of interconnecting all the Old Testament witness um, to the New Testament uh, history, what he had just experienced, right? Now, um, Paul also talks about in Galatians that he had um, discourse with, with Cephas, who's Peter. Uh, that's at the beginning of Galatians. And so that, that's pretty helpful too, I think. Um, you know, I picked up some more there. But uh, remember, Paul's called by Jesus, and he's gifted with the Holy Spirit, all right? Uh, so Paul, being a great student of the scriptures, um, also then, just uh, by the gift of the Spirit, uh, is able to see, as the scales fall off his eyes, right, uh, that Jesus is, it, that's who the Old Testament was witnessing to, what we call the Old Testament, or he would call the scriptures, all right? So that's Paul. Let's see if I can get back to where we were. Acts 9, 1 Corinthians 15. All right, good. I delivered to you what I also received. And then he just outlines it. 
And, and again, you can see the parallel there in Stephen's sermon in chapter 7 of Acts, right? Christ died for our sins, right? So the reason for his death is for our sins to forgive us. And again, according to the scriptures, he says that uh, twice, right? Um, that this is in, in keeping with the will of God as he has expressed by, the, by Moses and the prophets. And really the psalmist too. All right. And then uh, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day. Again, the third day according to the scriptures. So let's see, what should we talk about with these according to the scriptures? What scriptures is he talking about? Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Probably the easiest one there that you could use uh, is Psalm 50, or excuse me, Isaiah 53. <laughs> That's a very clear um, confession. Um, and it's also, it's also quoted frequently in the New Testament, Matthew 8, Acts 8, 1 Peter 2, all quote uh, Psalm 53. But I don't think you just have to do Psalm 53 for Jesus dying for sins. That's, excuse me, not Psalm 53, Isaiah 53. Sorry very much. Uh, but you can also use the Psalms, especially the Psalms Jesus himself prayed as he was being crucified. Psalm 22, Psalm 69, all right, which are great ones as well. And you can look, I think, especially at the testimony of Zechariah, chapter 12, and chapter 13. So chapter 12, verse 10, 13, verse 7. So look at those if you have opportunity. Um, but that Christ would die for our sins is the testimony of the Old Testament. But you don't have to just do it with direct prophecy. I think you can also see, in the same way as, as dying, bearing, uh, being buried, and then rising again, you can see that the whole history of the Old Testament is one of death and resurrection. Death and resurrection, death and resurrection. You see Israel, they go into exile, and then the Lord redeems them from exile and brings them back to the promised land, right? Um, they go down into Egypt because they literally would die otherwise. But then Egypt becomes this land of death for them, and the Lord redeems them and brings them back, brings them back into a place of life, right? Um, he casts Adam and Eve out of the garden because it will be death to them if they remain there. Um, well, they will still die, of course, but eternal death. Uh, and then he restores the garden and he'll bring them back home again. All right. So you have this pattern set up in the whole Old Testament. Um, and I think then you can also, in, in the way that Paul does, you can see that Jesus himself is fulfilling this death and resurrection motif, not just in a broad way, but in a very specific way. Think of how... Um, how God commands Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, but then God himself provides the substitute, the ram, as Abraham says, um, who's a ram with caught in a thicket, right, with thorns. Hmm, that's not coincidental, I don't think. And it actually comes back down the mountain on the third day, which is helpful too. <laughs> All right, now as far as third day, I mean, probably the closest direct prophecy uh, is the prophet Hosea. So we can look at Hosea, let's say Hosea 6, if I remember right. Come, let us return and re let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live in his sight. All right, so you have prophecy of the resurrection. And of course, um, Jesus himself refers to a sign as being a sign of the third day resurrection. And what is that? It's the sign of the prophet Jonah, right? Which is in Jonah. I'm in the wrong place. Yeah, Jonah prayed from the Lord's belly and 
from the fish's belly, prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly, and he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. All right, we'll scroll down, scroll down. Oh, and the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto the dry land. Right? And that was, of course, Jonah was in the belly of the fish for two days and was spit out on the third day. Yeah, here it is. That's the end of chapter one. Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and, th- and three nights. So those two are the obvious three days and three nights. Um, but once you open your, um, I think, ears to it, you'll see all sorts of three-day references in the Old Testament. And, uh, and they all, I, at least in my experience, um, the ones I've noticed are little resurrections. All right, so that's good. So look for that. And that's what Paul is, is doing here. All right, let's go back. Not Hosea. There it is, 1 Corinthians. Okay. Uh, he was buried. He rose again on the third day, according to the scriptures. We just did. And here's an interesting one. And that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. Now, Cephas is Peter, right? And you know um, that that's testified to, say, in Luke 24. And then by the twelve, and by the twelve he means, he doesn't mean, he, he's including Judas in a sense, but he's just referring to, to the disciples, the, the inner circle. All right, and after that, he was seen by 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep, which, as you know, is a euphemism for died. All right, rest in peace. Now, um, who are these 500 brethren? Uh, I think this is a mistake that many often make uh, when they read the New Testament. They, uh, it's easy to miss that Jesus doesn't just have 12 disciples, all right? He's got a whole host of disciples that are following after him, in addition to the women, of course, that are with him, right? Now, they don't all stay with him the whole way. Um, Look at, I think it's John, I'm going to say it's around John 7 or so, is um, he he scandalizes a fair number of them, and they, they don't follow him after that. All right, so... Who are these 500 that saw him uh, resurrected? Um, I actually like, uh, there's a hypothesis I read, and I, and I actually like it, which is um, that there weren't just the 12 at the ascension of Jesus. But actually, um, the whole host of disciples had gone out with Jesus to his ascension. I like the idea of that. Uh, it's not actually in the, in the scripture. It's not testified to, um, but it's a nice idea. Uh, we don't know who these 500 are for sure. But notice what Paul is doing here, and I think this is really important, um, is that he is saying that it is imperative upon the church of Corinth um, to validate his witness. Now, in uh, Deuteronomy, excuse me, Leviticus, I think it's 17, or maybe it's, yeah, Leviticus 17, I'm pretty sure. Or is it Deuteronomy? I always get, there's things in both. looking at my notes here. Mm. Oh yes, Deuteronomy 17, Deuteronomy 19, both testify that you need at least two eyewitnesses uh, that corroborate um, their testimony in order uh, for the testimony to be trustworthy. At least two, two eyewitnesses, right? Um, Now, the case of Jesus' death and resurrection, you've got four (laughs) eyewitness testimonies, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, In the case here, uh, according to Paul, according to his resurrection, You've actually got, in addition to Peter and the the rest of the 12, you also have 
you also have the 500 brethren, whoever they are <laughs> and whenever they were, right? Uh, and many of them are still alive. And the reason he mentions that is that you feel free uh, to go and ask them. Jesus, who was crucified, did, did he appear to you arisen? Prison? Did you see him? And of course, they're still alive. So you can, you can ask them, which I think is important. Um, now, we can't ask them today, but I think as far as what we call a Christian apologetic or defense for the faith, this is really important. This is a really important point to remember, is that um, at the time of the writing of this epistle, uh, and then later the Gospels, there was every necessity, really, that the witness of the, of the evangelists and the apostles be corroborated by real eyewitness testimony, right? By, that it would be true. It's necessary that it be true, not just believed. And sometimes we forget this. We think that faith is blind trust. It isn't blind trust, right? It's blind in a sense that you can't see it with your eyes, but you see it through the eye, eyes of the eyewitnesses as they testify to you in the Holy Scriptures, okay? So it is, um, it is a way of seeing, just not with your own physical eyes. So we see by faith, but really we see by hearing. I think that's even a better way to say it. Um, and... Um, you know, I'm thinking of one of my uh, professors who taught me, actually taught me Christian apologetics. And he recalled a story where um, he had presented all the evidence for the truthfulness of the scriptures. Um, and the person he was arguing with and demonstrating this to said, yes, I, I think this is trustworthy testimony. All right? That Jesus, this Jesus guy really lived and breathed and died and appeared to have, have risen from the dead. Um, and that many people followed after him. I agree with all of that. And then, well, what's, what's the next step, though? The professor acknowledged that when he asked then, well, then do you believe it? He's like, no, I don't think this has any benefit to me at all. <laughs> like, wait a minute. So you, you acknowledge the whole thing's true and that it actually happened, but you don't acknowledge the reason why it happened, right? Because that's what actually requires faith that one man could die for the sins of the world, right? Um, that we have to take him at his word on that. Whether he died and rose again, we actually don't have to take him at his word. Yes, he prophesied. Yes, he predicted his suffering and death and being and raising on the third day, sometimes directly, sometimes metaphorically. Think of like the temple and no stone left on another. Um, destroy this temple and on the third day I will raise it up. But um, as far as its benefit, that is what requires faith. So think, think about it um, in regards to how the Catechism confesses the Lord's Supper, right? What is necessary? What is it necessary to be worthy and well-prepared? Is to have faith in these words given and shed for you for the forgiveness of sins, right? It's one thing to acknowledge that it is the, the bread and wine is Christ's body and blood. But what is necessary to be believed is that it is for you for the forgiveness of sins. And the idea that one man, who happened to be God and man, right, um, could die and suffer and die and give his life in order to redeem your life and all mankind, um, well, that's quite unbelievable in a, in a kind of uh, natural religion sense. It's not the kind of religion that you could imagine or make up. All right, so hopefully that's helpful. So go and ask him. Find out. Did it actually happen? Right? And if it didn't actually happen, he's going to talk about what that means. Seven, that he was seen by James, 
I remember James had actually, uh, in John chapter 7, he was one of the ones that rejected Jesus. <laughs> James, his half-brother, right? Um, so, son of Mary and Joseph, uh, rejects him. And then um, Jesus restores him uh, in his resurrection. All right. And then uh, all the other apostles all see him. Right. So you can see that in, say, Luke chapter 24. All right. Or Acts chapter 1. Then, last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time. Um, a good way to translate that is to say one born prematurely. <laughs> um, that's the literal translation of that. We don't translate it that way. Um, born, born out of due time. So the Lord did appear to Jesus. You talked about the Damascus Road. I see Don put that down below. You can look at that in Acts chapter 9. All right. Um, uh, and St. Peter, excuse me, St. Paul here is acknowledging that he was, uh, he didn't follow the normal operations of things. Right? That he didn't come in, like say, he wasn't one of John the Baptist's disciples and he was brought in with the rest of them. Uh, and in a sense, he's not even a traditional eyewitness either, right? Because he witnessed the ascended Lord who appeared to him on Damascus after his ascension. So uh, quite a bit different. So in a, in a sense, he, like I said, he is bearing witness to the witness he's received. Um, I think the clearest example is from St. Stephen, you know, like we said in Acts 7. Okay, so then he talks about kind of his status. I am the least, he says. I am the least of the apostles. Um, as in, what is that? What is he actually getting after there, being the least? Yeah, it's, it's again, it's connected to this being born out of due time. So perhaps uh, he says something similar in uh, Ephesians 3. He says, to me, who am less than, than the least of all his saints, this grace was given. All right, that's a hint. Try this one, though. 1 Timothy 1, very similar saying. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief chief of sinners though I be, right? You know the hymn. And then he'll say something again in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I've become a fool in boasting. You have compelled me. For I ought to have been commended by you, for in nothing was I behind the most eminent apostles, though I am nothing. All right? He's referring to here the fact, I think, what he says in just a second, who am, who am not to be worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. So here's the key. Again, Acts 8, you can see this. Paul um, was the lead persecutor of the Christian church. And so he's the least worthy to be considered an apostle. And of course, he uses this repeated, repeatedly, that God chooses what is um, weakness in the world to shame the strong, right? We had that back in chapter 1. He chose what is weak, even things that are not, in order to bring to nothing things that are, as he said in chapter 1, referring to his own office. So Paul, um, he's, he's not an apostle because he deserves it, because he's done the hard work, because he was with the Lord the whole time, but actually because he's completely the opposite. And again, so that the grace of God would be made manifest, as he says here in verse 10, by the grace of God I am what I am, meaning by the giving character of God, the charis of God. And his grace toward me was not in vain, so it wasn't worthless. <laughs> he didn't just pour it out on me, and then I, it was waste, wasteful. 
um, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Um, He had more work to do, I think is a good way to translate this. He's being quite humble here. It doesn't necessarily come off that way in English, but he is being humble. Um, He's saying saying that I had a lot more work to do, right? Because nobody trusted him. Nobody trusted him. So over and over, he has to demonstrate that he is no longer a persecutor, but he is a, um, um, well, he's now a Christian, right? And then again, it's, it's not I. Paul is very careful to say it's not, it's not his own character that does this, but the grace of God which was with me, right? So God gave him the Spirit, and it's the Spirit that gave him the words to speak, the character, um, and actually is the one who con- convinced others that Paul was now a trustworthy witness. Therefore, whether it was I, that is the other apostles, or I, or they, the other apostles, so we together, so solidarity with the rest of the apostles, even though they didn't really receive him all that well, <laughs> we preach, and so you believed. All right. So now he's going to get into this really ar- big argument about, um, well, how do you demonstrate um, Christ being raised from the dead? And then really, what's the what's either both the benefit and what's the consequence if it's denied? So these people in, in the church in Corinth, what happens to you if you decide um, to reject this word? You know? How's it going to go for you? All right, so now, if Christ is preached that he has not been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? All right, so you see, he's implying that that's, that's the issue that he's responding to. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, or we might say of the body, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if, in fact, the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. He's said that before and he repeats it again. (laughs) So verse 13 and 16 are, are repetition. You see that? And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep, that is, died, in Christ have perished, that is, to die eternally. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, and we don't have the resurrection, we are of all men the most pitiable. Hmm. All right. So, um, let me talk a little bit about um, the Greek understanding here, because I think this will be helpful, again, as a backstory. I mentioned it before, but it's worth mentioning. Skepticism about uh, the resurrection would be common among Greeks. All right. So um, think of Paul's interaction at the Athenian Areopagus in Acts 17. Um, there he he's mocked for preaching the resurrection. Uh, maybe I just show you that quick. Acts 17:32. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and while others said, "We will hear you again on this matter." So Paul departed from among them. All right. Yeah, so he testifies to the, to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and they mock him for it. All right, so, so there's plenty of skepticism in uh, the Greek world, as we can see from that experience of Paul at the Areopagus. Traditionally, uh, they, the Greeks taught that, I have to get back to where we were. Uh, close enough, I think. No, we were here. All right, good. 
Uh, traditionally, the Greeks would have taught that, um, and not just their like religious types, but their philosophers, their historians, all would say that there's no hope of a resurrection. For example, Asiclus uh, says, when the dust hath drained the blood of man, once he is slain, there is no resurrection. Anastasis is the word. Plutarch believed, quote, that only the soul could attain to the realm of the gods through freeing itself of the attachment of the senses and becoming pure, fleshless, and undefiled. So um, the mythology that the Greeks believed was this, that at death only a person's soul was taken by the ferryman across the river Styx, you know, from Rockford, Illinois. No, that's a different thing. Uh, to the gloomy wo- world of the shades, this animistic idea um, that is, uh, all you know, like the whole world is alive, that kind of idea, that only the soul survives death is a shadowy, unhappy existence that's been common in most non-Christian cultures, according to this author. Even highly advanced cultures like those of ancient Egypt, Mesopotamia, and Greece, only Christians have the, been brightened by the hope of the resurrection of the body. So maybe what's happened here is that these traditional um, Corinthian Greek um, ideas have been woven into Christian teaching, like, um, um, say, like in Haiti, where voodoo is, is kind of blended in with Christianity with Catholic Christianity in particular. Um, So if they've already had the resurrection, then they don't need the resurrection later. Um, Then they might actually think that the life that they live now is the full life that Christ has for them, and then there is no life after that. All right, so maybe that's a helpful backstory. Now look at the logic here. Verse 12, uh, notice the if. I'll scroll up a little bit. If Christ is preached as risen from the dead, all right, then, see, if then, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? If there is no resurrection from the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. If Christ has not been raised, then one, our preaching is in vain, your faith is in vain, and we are found to be false witnesses of God. If the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised, same in verse 16. If Christ not has not been raised, again, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins, and all those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, then we are most miserable. That's the whole argument. So there's a bunch of if-then statements. If, if, then, if, then, if, then, if, then. And I, I think really the argument here is, is pretty straightforward. And that's why I said, I don't know that we have to spend a lot of time on it. But the the resurrection of Christ is necessary uh, not to prove that your sins are forgiven alone, um, but also that there is a resurrection body on the last day, right? Now, he does say that in there, if um, Christ is not risen, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. So you might say that the resurrection of Jesus, I think this would be a good way to say it, um, is proof that the... That the um, the sacrifice of Jesus for your sins was found acceptable by, by God the Father, right? Uh, having raised him from the dead. And I think it's said explicitly that way, probably Galatians maybe? I don't can't remember. All right? So that's part of it. That's true. But Paul's emphasis here is particularly on the resurrection on the last day, that we'll be raised in our body on the last day. And... Um, if we deny that we're raised in our body on the last day, then we're saying that Jesus' resurrection was a waste of time. So think about how we say it um, 
in the, in the context of the Lord's Supper, right? That we receive forgiveness, life, and salvation. Now, I don't know what life you're thinking. It's life now, right? But it's really talking about where there is forgiveness of sins, there is life and salvation. There is life eternal and um, being saved from our sins forever, right? So it's the sacrament is what um, pre- prepares us, as we confess there in the catechism, is preparing us um, for the day of our Lord's coming. Right? That's why we receive the sacrament as often as, as, uh, as we're able, so that we're always being prepared um, for the day of our Lord's arrival, for his coming, uh, to die with him and to be raised with him. All right? And if none of this is true, if none of this actually happened, then we are of all men to be the most pitiable. We have actually the worst religion in the world, if it's not true. This is such a beautiful move by Paul, um, and I think it's missed by a lot of Christians. Is you know that whole again that whole statement? You just gotta have faith. Well, you do have to have faith, but our faith is a fiducia in in Latin uh, is connected to uh, a census, right? Uh, that's another Latin word, um, which comes from scientia. All right, so in our Lutheran confessions and, and our dogmaticians, they they outline three parts actually to what we consider saving faith. First is scientia, that's from the word we get knowledge. Um, think science, right? You hear science in that scientia. So it's it's the data. So did did Christ was Christ in the tomb? Uh, was he witnessed? Was there you know? Um, did they seal the tomb? Did Pontius Pilate you know um, certify that? Um, were there other witnesses of the resurrection? All the data, right? Then there's assent, a census, and you assent to its truthfulness. You say yes. I know that those things actually happened. I, the, the eyewitness testimony, the, the hostile witnesses, the everything I know about, like from a legal kind of standpoint, um, you know, if I had to demonstrate the truthfulness of this, I could do it. Uh, I believe, uh, you know, I'm hesitating to say I believe. I know that it's true. That's assent. The third part, so we had scantia, assensus, and then fiducia, faith. That is trust, that 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 data that you've assented to is sufficient testimony to know that your sins are forgiven before God in heaven. All right, so three parts of that. Um, now, there's plenty of religions that you can follow, whether it's a Greek one or whatever, whatever religion you want to follow today, um, that have plenty of fiducia. You just got to trust. You just got to believe. Sometimes they ask for assent, um, but the data is often lacking. Of all the faiths in this world, Christianity is the only faith, really, the only faith that subjects itself to reason, uh, to skepticism, to analysis, to historic proof. At least uh, not in every bit of data, right? I mean, we can't really prove that God created the heavens and the earth in six days and rested on the Sabbath, for example. Um, we have to take him at his word on that because he alone um, is the eyewitness. But in terms of Christ's death, suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension, um, no, we actually have eyewitness testimony. We have uh, the ability to demonstrate its truthfulness. All right. Not for our own, just for our own sake, but for others' sake too. All right. So um, what is this? I mean, what's the implication of all this? What's the benefit of all this? I was thinking about this earlier. Um, I think the, the insight really has to do with Easter. 
that Easter means that there is victory for for those for all of us uh, in Christ. It's been won for us. But it also means that we we while we participate in Easter, our Easter here in this life is always uh, looking forward to the Easter that is to come, the the end time, the day when um, the marriage feast of the Lamb and His kingdom that has no end, as we say. Right. So so we experience it now. Jesus has, has died for our sins. We have the resurrection. We are God's child. We shall not die, but shall live and see the glory of God and see him eye to eye, face to face. The feast that we eat now of his body and blood is the same feast that we receive on the last day. But also not yet. There is also a not yet. Um, I think one of the places where this is very important is the way that sometimes people talk about um, the life after death, especially even Christians. And they say, well, you know, my loved one is in heaven and is playing golf and is having a great time. And I'm like, well, from our perspective, not yet. I'm like, what? No, they're, we just laid them to rest in the cemetery. <laughs> I mean, what is your life apart from your body? Now, is it true that when you die, um, you go to be with Christ immediately? Absolutely. All right. So we wanna, I want to be careful about this. Uh, here's the Here's the... There's not a lot of there's not a lot of testimony, but there's some. So here, uh, St. Paul in Philippians one, for I am hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. All right. So here, Paul is talking about the sinful flesh. He's referring to the body, um, and that it, when when he would depart, he would be with Christ presumably without his body for a time until the resurrection of all flesh. Uh, you might also use Luke 23, verse 43. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the guy who, who's, you know, the thief who's dead on the cross next to him, all right, or is going to be dead very shortly. You will be with me. And then also 2 Corinthians 5, we are confident, yes, well, pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. All right. So that's maybe one of the stronger ones. But that's about it that talks about the state of the body between um, death and the resurrection. What I think is actually more helpful, and pardon me if I've done this with you before, if you've already heard this, is actually to say um, that uh, once you're done, once, once you die, you're already in eternity right and and so from the dead person's perspective they're already in the resurrection and living the life eternal right because once you die you stop keeping track of time <laughs> no tiktok tiktoker right no tiktok going on um at, jesus himself refers to this you know he'll he'll wake the dead who are he'll wake those who are asleep with a voice of command and for, as far as they're concerned um it's just a heartbeat away right from when you die to when he calls to you in command. It's actually from our perspective that it's the not yet. But from the dead's perspective, it's already um, eternity. So they're already living um, the resurrection. Because <laughs> they transcend time in a way that we don't. <laughs> I don't know if that's helpful. I think it is. Um, it, it, when the questions come up, it's always we're always limited by talking about it from below, rather than saying from above, from Christ who is in eternity, the dead in Christ are already raised, and the judgment has already been done for them. All right. So in one sense, yes, they're playing golf in heaven, I guess, if you're into that sort of thing. Uh, you might look to Revelation 6, verse 9 as well. All right. 
so um, on the one hand, we don't want to be so grounded in this existence that we don't look forward to the hope of the life, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. So we confess that in, in the creeds, both apostles and Nicene. And that's our hope. At the same time, we don't only look forward to the hope and never speak of the, the what Christ is doing for us now in this life, here, on the, in this world. So we have, we have both going on at the same time. So, so like I showed you from Paul, um, to die and to be, or actually I didn't show you this, but he says elsewhere, and I think First Thessalonians, to die and to be with the Lord would be, would be great. Um, but if, if not, it means fruitful labor for me now here on this earth. So whether I live or I die, um, God, God will be praised. God will have his way uh, with me. He will use me for his benefit. All right. But if there is no resurrection, then the whole thing's a waste of time. And you might as well just eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow you'll die. You know, to be an Epicurean. Well, that's not fair to Epicurus, but it, it is fair to the Epicureans. All right, how are we doing on time? Oh, we still got some more time. All right, good. No, I don't, no questions, no questions. Maybe this is all too straightforward. All right, so let's see how far we want to go. But now, Christ is risen from the dead. <laughs> okay, so we got the rhetorical argument out of the way. And has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Again, the euphemism for death, who have died. All right. For since by man, Adam, came death, by man, a new man, Jesus, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, and afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. That's quoting Psalm 110. <laughs> all right. And then also, I think, in Palm Sunday, Matthew 22, something like that. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Also quoted by John, or spoken by John, Revelation 20. For he has put all things under his feet. There it is again. That's Psalm 8, actually. But when he has put all things under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is expected. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Now, this language here at the end, um, I don't know if it seems, it might not seem familiar to you, so maybe we need to go look at Psalm 110. Uh, he's really playing with it here. The Lord said to my Lord, this is the Psalm of David. Remember, oh, that's what goes on. It's in Matthew 22 that Jesus is, uh, uh, stumps the Pharisees, right? Silences them. How is it that David calls him both his son and his Lord? All right, well, here's, the, here's what he was re referring to. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. He will judge among the nations, execute the heads of many countries. Therefore, he shall lift up his head. Yeah, so pretty, pretty cool, right? Um, that he's, he's defeating all enemies. Sometimes people ask that question, I suppose, and maybe it's worth remembering. You know, why 
why uh, has the Lord delayed his coming? Well, one, so that the whole host of heaven would be numbered, right? That all that that will believe in him uh, will be both born and then die in him, right? To be raised on the last day. Um, But also that he's destroying all enemies, all rule, all authority, and all earthly power, right? It's quite literally um, demonstrating his power over sin, death, and devil in our own midst, right? Uh, and But it has to be done in order, right? Paul's careful about that. Um, first, Christ is the first fruits, and then afterward, who are Christ at his coming, right? And then comes the end when he finally defeats all, right? So it's one thing after another. Um, and, and again, he's doing this because there are those who deny that, that resurrection. All right. Notice the last enemy to be destroyed because the devil's already been defeated, but the last enemy to be destroyed is death right? Uh, And that's because we still are dying, right? So um, that enemy is being destroyed even in our midst now. When all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him, who put all things under him, that God may be all in all, right? The Father places the Son, all things in subjection to the Son. I think that's all pretty pretty straightforward. Um, By the way, subject this is that word again that we talked about um, back in chapter 14 in regards to women in the church, that this is hupotasio, hupotasso, this is to be placed under, right? So um, the disorder of this world is being brought into order <laughs> through Christ's suffering and death, um, through his work in the church, that he's putting things in order for the benefit of all, all right? Um, there was another kind of neat word in there that maybe it's worth noting. Verse, I think I have to go 23. Yeah, who are Christ at his parousia. Um, that's a, that word, probably not a terribly common one for you. So let me, let me see if I can get a bigger definition of that. Where is my other window? Ah, there it is. All right, 23, parousia. Yeah. Uh... How are you going to define that for me? Come on. Computer. You want to do it? You really do? There it goes. Okay. Uh, a being present, a presence of things um, or an arrival in the New Testament, the advent. So this is his advent at his coming, his adventing. All right. So that's a beautiful word too. Uh, anything else I want to do there? No, I think that's pretty straightforward. All right. Now, um, this next part, mm, yeah, we want to leave this till next week. We got to talk about what's the consequence if we deny the resurrection. So we'll hold off on that until next time. Uh, and that will get us, eh, maybe we can actually finish out the book next time. We'll see if that works. Uh, I might cover some of this too. I have some other ideas, but it just I think it'll take too long, so... Uh, as far as being subject under their feet. So I think that's a good place to leave off. Uh, It was good to have you all with us tonight. Uh, I hope this was a blessing to you. Thanks for your uh, question. Well, no questions, but, uh, well, listening and watching. Um, And join us again tomorrow, tomorrow morning, for our congregation of prayer at 9 a.m.-ish, and uh, be edified then, too. So Lord be with you this evening. We'll see you tomorrow.